I'm so excited you've decided to join us for this study about the life of Elisha. If you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to discuss first off his commitment. I've entitled the entire study, Elisha's Double Portion. And I put in the notes that not only did he ask for a double portion of God's Spirit, but that maybe we ought to as well. A double portion of God's Spirit. That's our goal. A double portion. Hmm. I can still remember uh, in my childhood when I got to stop having a single scoop of ice cream and got to start happening, start having a double scoop of ice cream. What a great day that was. Double anything, especially if it's something good, is always noteworthy. So let's dive into the life of Elisha and find out about this double portion. Before we actually read the passage in 1 Kings 19, let me give you just a little bit of background. Elisha is a successor to the prophet Elijah. Now, Elisha is going to have a 60-year ministry as a preacher and a prophet, a leader of a school of prophets. Uh, in some senses, he was a political activist and certainly a man of God. His ministry was during the 8th century B.C., and he, and he served uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel. He served during the reign of four ungodly kings, Jehoram, Jehu, Joash, and Jehoahash. Now, Elisha was from the tribe of Issachar. His dad is named uh, in the passage, Shaphet. And apparently, uh, Shaphet uh, was a wealthy landowner, and therefore so was Elisha. They came from a, a, a town uh, that was near the River Jordan, south of of, of the town of Bethshane. His name means God of salvation. And Elisha is mentioned once in the New Testament in Luke chapter 4. God kind of takes his finger and puts, his, uh, puts that finger on the, on the historical account of Elisha uh, being a prophet. He says, many in Israel had leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Nam the Syrian. So he, he, he gives a, a, a note of uh, uh, accuracy to the fact that Elisha was a prophet in Israel. We don't think he was married. He certainly has no other relationships. He lived with his parents. And what's noteworthy, too, is that in spite of their wealth, uh, he worked right alongside in the fields with all of the servants. He had, a, he had a remarkable character. We garner that from watching some of his actions. He was a humble guy and very much uh, known for his care for others. Um, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 and then later in chapter 4, there's a series of stories one of them, uh, he's, uh, he's uh, the one who heals some, heals some water in a well. So a, a village has something to drink. And another, 
he uh, miraculously keeps filling up a, a widow's uh, jar of oil so she'll have enough to pay off her debts. In another story, he takes a few loaves of bread and, and turns it into meals that, that serve about a hundred guys. Over and over again, he, he cares for others. He's a very courageous man, though. He stood up to three kings in Second Kings 3, and he prophesied the defeat of Moab. Um, that took some courage. He is known probably primarily, though, as a man of faith. Uh, he understood the principle that you and I find in the New Testament, that it's impossible to please God without faith. When he gave Nahum the instructions on how to get rid of leprosy, um, he was told to go wash seven times in the River Jordan. He was underscoring the necessity for him to have faith in Yahweh. There's an, an account of the prophets at the school of the prophets doing some construction work, and, and their axe head comes loose, and it's lost. And by faith, there's a there's an incredible miracle that takes place uh, with the axe head floating and, and the prophets getting to see the, the faith of the man of God in action. And then later on, when he's dealing with the Aramean army, uh, causing them uh, to become blind, he, he gives an example to a servant of, of how he's got to have vision that comes by faith. He is a man of, of great faith. Now, before we get into the actual call and the commitment of, of Elisha, we ought to take a moment to compare him to Elijah. Now, Elijah comes first in the accounts, uh, in, in uh, the historical accounts, and Elijah was more of a solitary kind of prophet. He, um, he had a, a rather harsh message. Uh, he was always calling people to repentance. When we find uh, uh, this account of the call of Elisha, it's right on the heels of Elijah having a, an amazing moment with, with Ahab and, and uh, Jezebel. Um, Elisha, on the other hand, is, is more interested in a lot of personal relationships, and you see him focusing on resolving people's problems. Um, Elisha was also probably more politically involved than Elijah but the, the remarkable thing about both of them is that they were miracle workers. Um, there are a ton of miracles ascribed both to Elijah and Elisha. Now, Elisha, though, performed twice as many as Elijah. And in your notes, I listed some for you, um, which I got from our, our uh, uh, from a Bible study called the Agape Bible Study. It's interesting, uh, of the 16 miracles that Elisha is involved in, there, there are things like parting the waters of the River Jordan, um, providing that water source for the village, um, making sure that that, that widow had plenty of, of oil so she could pay off her debts. Um, he's involved in the resurrection of, of, of the Shunammite's uh, uh, woman's son, he makes sure and, and purifies some poison food. He multiplies that bread. He, he's involved in Nam's healing. He, uh, he does that miracle I m mentioned a moment ago in finding the axe head. Um, he strikes the Arameans blind miraculously and, and then prophesies both the, the death of Ben-Hadad and, and the defeat of King Ahaziel. 
So he is a miracle worker. So with all that in mind now, let's read uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, and, and uh, we'll start with verse 15. We're right on the heels of Elijah coming, coming back into circulation after having hidden away and being ministered to by God. God's trying to, to encourage him to go back and get back in the, in, the, in the game of ministry, if you will. And he says in verse 15, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, I want you to anoint Ahaziel, king over Amram. And then I want you to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha, the son of Saphat, uh, to succeed you as a prophet. Now, a couple of things about this calling of, of Elisha. First off, there's no account here. There's no record of, of, of Elisha actually being called to service with some sort of a direct encounter with God. That seemed to be the pattern in the Old Testament. Um, you remember Moses has his incredible burning bush incident in Exodus chapter 3. And then Abraham uh, is told directly by God to leave his homeland and go to a place that will tell him about later. There's a, there's a direct encounter with God. In this account, there is not a direct encounter with God. Let's go on and read verse 19 now. It says, so Elisha, Elijah rather, went from there and he found Elisha. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and he gave it to the people and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. So no direct encounter with God, but instead the language that, that was given to Elijah is, is language that suggests a, an anointing of kings. God has a successor in mind for Elijah, and, and Elisha is going to become uh, his aid, much like Joshua was an aid to Moses or John Mark in the New Testament was an assistant to Paul and Barnabas. Elisha is, is going to be known as the, as the assistant or the aid to Elijah, so much so that in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse number 11, there's kind of a phrase that's used for him. He became known as the, quote, man who used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. So the setting for this calling is that Elisha is out in the field plowing. I said earlier that we believe his family was wealthy, but look at the work ethic of this man of God. He's right out there in the field working side by side with the servants the 12 oxen suggest that they had a lot of money. A farmer in those days in that culture would have been very happy if he had one beast of burden that he could use uh, to help plow. And in this case, he's got 12. Now, um, it's a little uh, un unclear when it says that he, he had 12 yoke of oxen and he himself was driving the 12th pair. 
one one way of looking at it is that he had a large team, all twelve of them hook up together. The soil in that area of Israel was was uh, filled with clay and very hard to break up. So maybe he did have a large team uh, that he was using to 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 haul the pl- the plow around. But more likely, he had one team uh, of a couple of oxen, and his servants had the rest. The actual anointing is is unusual. Uh, when a when a king uh, was anointed in the Old Testament, generally speaking, they used oil. But in this case, Elijah takes his cloak and throws it over the shoulders of Elisha. Now that cloak was a very interesting garment. It was the official garment of a prophet. Zechariah in chapter 13 in verse number 4 calls it a garment of hair. So we're assuming that one side of it was pretty rough and notable. It would have distinguished someone. If you saw that cloak, it would be a symbol of of the office. Uh, Calling to mind, uh, maybe in the Roman culture, togas. Uh, They immediately told you something about the person who, who was wearing it. Or the Greeks had... Had, had cloaks that they called palliums. Um, and, in, and in Jewish cultures, servants often carried these cloaks. But at this moment, Elijah uses it by throwing it onto the shoulders of Elisha to indicate, okay, the mantle has been passed. What's noticeable here is that Elisha gets the message. No, no words are exchanged. There, there's no... Um, anointing of oil. There's no special uh, expressions or praying over. He just understands that now there is this call on his life. His response is immediate. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, dilly-dally around. He doesn't kick the dirt. He doesn't ask a bunch of questions. Made me think a little bit of the apostles in the New Testament. Um, in uh, Mark chapter 1, verse number 18, uh, the Bible says that after Jesus called them, they at once left their nets and followed him. In a similar fashion, Elisha is, is not delaying at all. He is, he's ready to go and he follows uh, after, he runs after, the Bible says, Elijah. He does have one request, and that is to, to go home and kiss his mom and dad goodbye. Some have suggested that this is a delaying tactic, uh, but most commentators do not believe that. Really what he's doing is just showing a lot of respect for his parents. And he wants to give them the news of of his anointing. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in in a moment. Of special note is the response that Elijah gives. He says, go ahead and go on back. And then he asks this question, what have I done to you? Kind of sounds funny in English, but... But in Hebrew, really what he's saying is, hey, it's not up to me. You, you have to respond to God. This calling that's on your life, it's coming from Yahweh. He understood that. And Elisha is now going to respond to this calling with some serious commitment. If you remember what the passage says, it says he took his yoke of oxen and he slaughtered them. And he burned the plowing equipment to cook the meal, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. He asked to go home, and he sponsors a, a celebration. He slaughters those oxen, all 12 of them. 
Now, maybe they just were slaughtered for the meat so that his family and friends could have something to eat. That's very possible. But it's also possible that he may have offered some of that meat uh, in response to the sacrificial system that he knew about. Leviticus, first seven chapters, talk about the sacrificial system uh, that was in place for, for the Israelites. And, and he may very well have had in mind uh, the example that, that was discussed in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, when, when David wants to find a place, a permanent place for the, the tabernacle to reside. And he goes up to a, a man, Aruna by name, and he has a threshing floor, and and he asks to buy that so that he can he can put the tabernacle there. Um, and and the Bible tells us that Aruna responds and says, "Take whatever pleases you, offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and here's the the threshing equipment and the yokes, and burn them up. Use those for wood." So uh, whether Elisha was thinking about that illustration or just providing a meal for his friends. Or, or making certain that there was a, a, a sacrifice being made, he's slaughtering all the oxen. He is, he is doing away with his financial security. And then he does another thing. He tells us another thing. He says he burned up his plowing equipment, the yokes and the plows. He's making certain that he could never return again to the job of a farmer. He's leaving everything and following after uh, Elijah, and ultimately after Yahweh. When we used to take kids to summer camp uh, at, at church, one of the songs that we often sang around the campfire was, I have decided to follow Jesus. And the punchline to that, that chorus was, no turning back, no turning back. That's what Elisha's doing. He's making a commitment. He's counting the cost. He's, he's getting rid of any signs or symbols of his security. He's, he's moving on. Um, that made me think a little bit uh, as a history buff of uh, uh, Cortez in uh, 1519. You probably know the story. He takes 600 men and arrives in uh, around Veracruz, Mexico, uh, wanting to... Uh, conquer it. And one of the first things he does when all the men are ashore is he destroys his ships. He burns the ships so that there can be no turning back. And history tells us that about two years later he succeeded in his conquest of the Aztec Empire. Elisha burns the equipment, slaughters the oxen. And then the Bible gives us the sense that there's a celebration it's not a somber occasion. He's, he's, uh, he's not going kicking and screaming into the ministry. He's responding to this call with a level of commitment, expressing great pleasure at having been selected. His commitment to Elijah and Yahweh um, is, is marked by this public celebration. He's separating from his parents He's moving into his ministry, and he's doing it with great joy. There's no sadness. There's no regret. There's no being resigned to, I guess I'll serve the Lord. No, he is thrilled that the call has been made, 
and he's responding with a deep, deep level of commitment. Now that's the story of the call of Elisha, 1 Kings chapter 19. But as I like to do at the end of each of my lessons, I like to ask the question, so what? So that's the account. What does that have to do with you and me? Well, I would like to suggest that Elisha is not the only one who has to respond to a calling. Every person who's named the name of Christ as their Savior and Lord has the same responsibility to respond to his call on our lives. God expects us to respond and to make some commitments. I think that that calling is a, is a special one uh, that God uh, makes certain happens to, to every believer. And sometimes it comes in, in seasons or waves or his, his will is unfolded. But in, but in a general sense, every Christian has a call on their life. Now, I know from time to time, the Spirit of God does give a very specific call to a very specific person, go here, do this. But more likely, it is an awareness on our part that we recognize that in His grace, God has saved us. And also in His grace, God has called us to accomplish some things with him and for him. And we do that out of a position of strength. Our call is rooted in who we are. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. In that passage, uh, Peter says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're a people belonging to God for the purpose that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are called out of darkness into light. And in that calling, we are to recognize that we've been chosen and given a, a spiritual responsibility and that we belong to God. There's more to that calling, and you can find my next thought in Ephesians chapter 4. The first six verses talk about um, that we're to live a life that is worthy of our calling. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. And then he goes on to kind of describe it a little bit. He says, so be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. He goes on in verse 3 to say, to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The life that we're called to is a life that, that puts some responsibility on us. We need to live it in a way that demonstrates our calling, a life that is worthy of our calling. There's a great little short list there. How am I doing with humility, my gentle spirit? Is there patience in the way I relate to others? Can I bear up? Can I, can I forgive one another? And am I committed to a life of, of uh, building bridges and showing unity 
the call on our lives uh, requires us to demonstrate what's going on inside of us. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it goes um, another step in the direction of describing or telling about this calling. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 17, he says that each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him, to retain the place that we've been assigned, that, that, that God has called us to. He's trying to tell us that God has a specific uh, plan for the details of our lives. And our calling needs to be acknowledged. We need to retain that place, not always looking for greener pastures, not always wishing that our gift uh, set, our spiritual gifts and our personal gifts were different. I wish I was like that one. I wish I had that gift. I wish I could do that job but that we learn to, to live within our assigned calling. And what ultimately is our calling? It's found in Matthew chapter 28, a passage every one of us should have memorized. Matthew 28, the last message from Jesus before going up into heaven again in Acts chapter 1. He calls the 11 disciples up to Galilee and and then he says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore, because I have this authority, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, ob to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Our calling is to go and make disciples. My particular personal calling began in the summer of 1969 when I bowed my knee and my heart and accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But that calling didn't end uh, at, at that moment. I had, I had repeated callings on my life to, to, to go to Bible college and get some training, to work at a local church, to do some consulting work for Christian nonprofits, to go to seminary and get some further training, to be involved in a ministry from the ground up, which is why I, I was the co-founder of Stony Brook Christian Schools, to, to have experience in, in, in people's lives for, for over 35 years, and, and then the calling to repurpose uh, upon uh, you know semi-retirement. God's call all through those years, 50-some-odd years, is still summed up in to go and make disciples. So that's his call. We have to respond. What's our commitment? Well, our commitment is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse number 5, where we're told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. God says that we're to present ourselves, much like Elisha presented the, the oxen for slaughter and, and burned up all of the yokes and everything that, that was associated with that. There was, a, there was a commitment. There was some presenting. In, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're to, we're to present ourselves to God. Uh, 2.15 says this, 
do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Where our commitment is to be people of God's book, to study the scriptures, to, to understand them. We're to present ourselves as students of God's word. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, a part of our commitment is to devote ourselves to some things. In that passage, uh, the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to breaking bread together. And they were devoted to prayer. All kinds of things that you and I, in our commitment, in responding to our calling, should be doing. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse number 61, he reminds us that, that this presenting and this devoting should be a, an act of, of, of deep uh, commitment. We're to be fully committed. He says, but your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord, our God, to live by his decrees and obey his commands. Present yourself, devote yourself, be fully committed. Those are our commitments in response to our calling. A calling requires commitment. It requires a response. And that response should be knowledgeable. It should be thoughtful. We need to think it through. It may have some consequences associated with it. But we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our strength. When I think about uh, responding uh, to a calling with deep commitment, I think about those 56 guys who signed the Declaration of Independence. I'm sure at one point or another you've looked at that declaration and noticed that there were 56 signatures. I wonder if you've ever thought about what happened to those, those men who put their name on a document and 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 said you know it's our sacred our sacred duty to stand for something we're committed to something well their conviction resulted in in untold sufferings for themselves and their families let me let me read a little of this to you of those 56 guys five of them were captured by the british and they were tortured until they were killed 12 other guys had their homes ransacked and burned to the ground Two of them lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Two more of them had their sons captured. Nine of the 56 guys fought and died from wounds or hardships that incurred during the war. Carter Braxton, a guy from Virginia who was a wealthy planter, saw his ships sunk by the British Navy. He sold his home and his properties to pay off his debts, and he died in abject poverty. Um, Thomas Nelson, another signer, uh, was um, ordered by, um, or excuse me, uh, not Thomas Nelson, excuse me. Yeah, that's right, Thomas Nelson. He was, um, um, I'm messing this up, let me read it exactly, at the Battle of Yorktown. The British General Cornwallis had taken over Thomas Nelson's home for his headquarters. Uh, and Nelson quietly ordered 
um, that his uh, that his army opened fire, uh, and and his home was destroyed, and Nelson died in bankruptcy. Another man, John Hart, was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying, and they had thirteen children. They all fled for their lives. His fields and his mill were destroyed, and for over a year he lived in in the forest and caves, and finally returned home only to find his wife dead and his kids all gone. A few weeks later, he died of exhaustion. Look, 56 guys signed the Declaration of Independence and made a commitment, and it cost them something. I'm encouraging you to think about your response to God's call on your life and to think about that commitment. Because Luke chapter 9, verse 62 says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Elisha had a call and he made some serious commitments. You and I have a call of God on our life and he expects some serious commitments from us as well. I've put some discussion questions down there. First of them says, can you articulate God's call on your life? And does that call bring you great joy? Why or why not? Second question is, has there been a time when you have formally committed yourself to follow hard after Jesus? Have you left some things behind? Can you discuss with your group the evidence of that commitment? And lastly, it might be time for some recommitments. And if if that's true, I encourage you to make them. Well, thanks for coming. It, uh, it was wonderful to have you here, and it would have been no fun without you. God bless you. Have a great evening.